With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. It's time for Home is Where the Haunt is, the portion of our podcast devoted to personal experiences with ghosties and ghoulies. Have a story to share? Send it in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. The Haunted Middle School My middle school was haunted by the ghost of Violet Sharp, a suspect in the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. She was proved innocent after she hung herself in the maid's quarters. My school was a converted Morrow estate. Charles Lindbergh married Anne Morrow in my math drama classroom. But the third floor, the old maid's quarters, was the most haunted place in the school. You never wanted to be roaming around after hours in any part of the school. Doors would open and close, lights would flicker. There were offices on the third floor, and when you went up there, down this one hallway, you would feel yourself suffocating. Not 100%, but you felt it. Everyone had the same experience. One time I was trespassing on another part of the campus with a group of friends, and we heard a choir of children. There was 100%. No Choir There, by Sam. The Lindbergh kidnapping was an event that gripped the world in its mystery. Let's take a short detour and find out more. American pilot Charles A. Lindbergh was the first person to fly nonstop from New York to Paris. On March 1, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr., the 20-month-old son of Colonel Charles Lindbergh and his wife Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was abducted from his crib in the upper floor of the Lindbergh's home in New Jersey. On May 12th, the child's corpse was discovered by a truck driver by the side of a nearby road. In September 1934, a German immigrant carpenter named Bruno Richard Hauptmann was arrested for the crime. After a trial that lasted from January 2nd to February 13, 1935, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Hauptmann proclaimed his innocence all the way to the electric chair, and there are still some unanswered questions about the event to this day. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. What you just heard is an EVP, or electric voice phenomenon. 
It is the recorded voice of someone who has passed on, in other words, a ghost. In our story, The Disc Recorder, by August Derleth, the main character uses a disc recorder to assist him in his writing. What he captures is far more ghostly than literary. In the story, ghostly voices are captured on a device called a disc recorder. Now, this disc recorder is different than its modern-day namesake. The disc recorder in our story resembled a modern phonograph. A black vinyl disc spun on a turntable and recorded what was spoken or played into the microphone. The sound could then be played back. It was similar in design to Thomas Edison's phonograph, but ran on electricity rather than a hand-turned crank. Since sound recording was invented, ghost enthusiasts have tried to capture the voices of the dearly departed on a variety of devices. An EVP was captured as early as 1941 on magnetic tape, which is reel-to-reel. A German filmmaker was recording birdsong. When he played it back, there were two voices speaking. He was all alone when he recorded. While researching the history of recording dead souls, I came across an article on Thomas Edison's invention designed to do just that. The story of sound recording and reproduction began in 1877, when the man of a thousand patents, Thomas Edison, invented the phonograph, a device that could play and record sound. What many people don't know is that Edison also invented a device he hoped would contact the dead. This is the story of one of Edison's least successful inventions, the spirit phone. These are excerpts from an article published by Natalie Sorelli. October 18, 2016. In the late 1920s, not long before his death, Thomas Edison reportedly gathered with other scientists in a secret laboratory to record the voices and presence of the dead. They used speakers, generators, and other experimental equipment, Modern Mechanics magazine alleged after the fact, in October of 1933. The magazine article described Edison's machine, in which a tiny pencil of light coming from a powerful lamp bored through the darkness and struck the active surface, which could detect the smallest particle. These particles would be proof of the afterlife, physical bits of human personality left in the atmosphere waiting to be discovered. Unfortunately, after tense hours spent watching the delicate instruments, nothing happened, which was, as the magazine adds, why no one had heard of this experiment before. In 1920, the inventor shocked the public when he told American Magazine, I have been at work for some time, building an apparatus to see if it is possible for personalities which have left this earth to communicate with us. Edison, who was known for having hundreds of patents of inventions and creating an efficient version of the light bulb, added that this new invention would not function by any occult, mystifying, mysterious, or weird means employed by so-called mediums, but by scientific methods. I am engaged in the construction of one such apparatus now, and I hope to be able to finish it before many months have passed. Edison's idea became known as a spirit phone and caused a media storm. For years, many historians believed the invention to be a joke or a hoax, No blueprints or prototypes of a spirit phone could be found. But while he may not have actually contacted the dead, there is evidence he experimented with the idea. 
that a well-respected scientist who greatly influenced modern technology could try to contact the spirits seemed unlikely to the public. But when Edison spoke of his idea in 1920, spiritualists were still going strong in the United States. Some even called themselves phone voyants and claimed that they could harness the electric signals in conventional phones to interpret spirits. At the time, communicating with spirits didn't seem much more impossible than harnessing electricity. Other similarly airy ideas appeared during this time, too. Thomas Watson, the well-regarded assistant of telephone inventor Alexander Graham Bell, also dabbled in the idea of a spirit phone, while an invention by Bell and ear specialist Clarence J. Blake, the ear phonotograph, recorded sounds using a stylus attached to the head and ear. Speaking to loved ones beyond the grave may have appealed to the public, but for Edison this was a matter of strict science. Edison believed that life was indestructible and that the quantity could never be increased or decreased. He theorized that like our bodies, our personalities have a physical form made of tiny entities like our current view of atoms. He thought these entities might exist after humans passed away. A personality-based residue of loose memories and thoughts containing part of who a person was during life. If these particles existed, he reasoned, they could collect in the ether around us. Possibly, they could be amplified by his device like a human voice could be amplified and recorded by a phonograph. Since Edison's death in 1931, ghost communicating helpfuls have been looking for blueprints to build and test the spirit phone, or at least to approximate it. In 1941, researchers tried to replicate the spirit phone and call the inventor up after they believed they were instructed to do so by Edison's spirit via a medium. Alas, the contraption did not seem to successfully transmit any life units, Stephen Palmier writes in the anthology Spirited Things. Hold the phone. Am I a life unit? I much prefer phantom, spirit, wraith, specter, or apparition. Life unit. How unromantic. Listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. August Derleth has been featured many times on Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. He was a prolific writer and created the Cthulhu Mythos. And now, The Disrecorder by August Derleth.
I can hardly let you have the house for more than a year, said the agent. Mr. Nason expects his wife back from the Orient soon after, and he himself will be back by then. He's letting the place furnished, with the exception of a single closed room in which they've stored their more personal belongings. At least a year, mused Lauren Harcourt. Solitude and relative isolation in a modern house on the edge of Brancaster. But can I be assured of that year? he asked. What about Mrs. Nason? Suppose she decides to return earlier. She won't. She's a writer of travel books, you know. She's gone to Asia after material. I think he said she had an assignment and couldn't very well finish it before then. In any case, he has the renting of the house, and she's not likely to interfere. And that closed room is that one on the ground floor? The agent nodded. It's not as if you'd be shut out of it or anything like that. It's locked, but you'll have the key to it with the others. Though there's nothing in it you'd like, I'm sure. In the face of Harcourt's indecision, he added, I don't see why you're hesitating, Mr. Harcourt. The fact is, the place seems ideal for your purpose. You need to get away after a bit of trouble like yours, and the nascent house looks like the ideal place. Nor did Harcourt himself quite understand why he hesitated. He had looked over the house, and it had indeed seemed the right place. He wanted to get away somewhere in order to cut himself off from all familiar places. He was a retired teacher who had recently suffered the sudden accidental death of a son and his wife, and being a sentimentalist, he preferred to remove himself for a while from the milieu associated with them. Moreover, he hoped to write a book himself on the theory of education, and it seemed appropriate that he should do so in a house which had sheltered a published writer. Just the same, however much the house suited him, there had been an air of tension about it, as if it were not restful, belaying its appearance. Now, pressed by the agent, he shrugged and resigned himself to the inevitable. There was no other house which came close to satisfying him. Very well. I'll sign. He moved in within a week. The house was built on the side of a hill. Gardens and lawns sloped down toward a little pond at its foot, and the second story of the house opened out onto the ground farther up the slope. The room which Harcourt chose as his own was a gracious one on the second floor. He had no doubt it had been used by Bertha Nason as well. It was a room which stretched all the way along the house, with a wide picture window facing the pond and the rolling country beyond, and, on the other end, French doors opening out to the slope near the top of the hill. In but a few days he was settled in and comfortable. In a few more he had thoroughly explored the pleasant country and familiarized himself with Brancaster. In a fortnight, he had begun to set down an outline for his projected book, the subject of which, though insufferably dull to the average reader, was nevertheless of singular interest to him, as he imagined it would certainly be to every other educator in the country. Harcourt was a man of methodical habits. He set himself to work just three hours every day. He spent an additional hour hiking, two more hours puttering around the gardens and grounds, and— Apart from time for his frugal meals, he spent the balance of his day and evening reading. He slept just eight hours, neither more nor less, and very few sounds disturbed his sleep. 
One night, however, during his fourth week at the nascent house, Harcourt's rest was troubled. He had partaken too heavily of oysters, and his stomach, unaccustomed to such rich food, protested. He went to bed with misgivings, which were adequately justified. He found it impossible to close his eyes, to will himself to sleep, but not to go to sleep. After two hours of trying, he got up and put on his dressing gown with the intention of walking out into the moonlit summer night until the edge of his distress should have worn off and he might return with more assurance of being able to sleep. It was just as he was stepping from his bedroom that he heard sounds from below. He stopped in amazement and listened. He heard a peculiarly flat, nasal voice speaking. Unquestionably a human voice, he told himself, but try as he might, he could distinguish no word. Harcourt was a woefully imaginative man. He conceived instantly that burglars had broken into the house and were systematically looting it. He perceived in the following instant that he might be held responsible for anything which was taken. Like many men, danger to life and limb held little terror for Harcourt, but an assault on his purse was another matter entirely. Heedlessly, he plunged down the stairs, pausing only long enough to take up his stout walking stick. He turned on lights as he went and called out maledictions on the malefactors as he expected to encounter them. He went from room to room and met no one. He tried all the doors and windows. There was no sign of illegal entry. Harcourt was thus left with but one possibility. Somehow, someone must have jimmied a window of the closed room and got in. Forthwith, he went back upstairs and got his keys. Despite the dangers his imagination conjured up before his mind's eye, he did not hesitate to unlock the closed room. Since there had been nothing but grave silence following his noisy descent of the stairs, he felt that he was justified in assuming that the miscreants, whoever they were, had made good their escape through the same window by which they had gained entry. The room sprang to life under the glow of the lights. Somehow, Harcourt had expected it to be packed full of things. Instead, he saw that it was only an ordinary sitting room with a lounge now shrouded and covered against lint and dust, several chairs, a desk, and some other items of furniture. The door of a small closet stood open, revealing large hangers which evidently held many of Mrs. Nason's dresses, all carefully encased in stiff paper to prevent deterioration during her stay in the Orient. But what caught Harcourt's eye almost immediately was a disc recorder standing near the desk, together with stacks of discs, some manifestly used, others clearly not yet touched, ready for anyone who might care to use the recorder. In his excitement at this discovery, the further discovery that the windows of this room, too, bore no signs of tampering, was lost to Harcourt. He foresaw immediately how useful the disc recorder might be to him as soon as he was ready to do the actual writing of his work on education. Moreover, the recorder was not the kind of property which could be harmed or worn down by his use of it. If Bertha Nason had known, furthermore, that another writer of even such modest pretensions as Harcourt were to occupy the house in her absence, he was firmly of the opinion that she would have expected and intended him to use the disc recorder. All else immediately became secondary to this prize. Without further ado, Harcourt moved the recorder upstairs to his study. He came back down for the discs, taking some of each along. 
back in his room, he plugged the recorder in, selected a disc at random from the stack of used ones, and put it on. The clear, mellifluous tones of a woman's voice sprang to life in the room. The Mexican landscape and that of the American Southwest are, in great many aspects, similar. Heat dominates both. The shimmering of heat waves, perhaps even small mirages, and that constant kind of heat haze which is so prevalent wherever there is more sunlight than rain, more heat than temperate weather. There is an aura of a great age about both, sometimes caught in monolithic rocks, sometimes in ancient Indian structures. He shut off the machine, removed the disc, and dug deep down into the stack for another, which he put on in place of the first. He settled back to listen to this, though presumably, since Mrs. Nason wrote travelogues, it too would concern some corner of the earth with which the lady hoped to make her readers familiar. But no, he decided, after a moment of listening, this was fiction. But what, I often wonder, am I to do with Baxter? He dogs my days, literally. I can hardly tell you, Elisa, what a bore he has become. I suppose divorce is the answer, but he would fight it tooth and nail, for which I am realist enough hardly to blame him, for he has never had it so decent and good as now. Yet when all is said and done, and will it ever be, I wonder? He is sometimes morose and brooding, sometimes exhilarated and effervescent. One never knows from day to day. When all is said and done, as I said, what must come of it all? He shut this off, too. He had not realized that Mrs. Nason wrote fiction, but evidently she did. As a matter of fact, until he had come to look at the house, Harcourt had never even dreamed of the existence of Bertha Nason. The names he knew were virtually all in properly academic fields. This time he put on an unused disc and prepared to speak. His words rolled out ponderously. The proper course for the educator of the future to follow lies midway between the so-called progressive thought and the traditional curriculum. Somewhere there is a middle course. It must be found, and if it must be found at the expense of greatly augmented extracurricular activities which prevail in our time, then away with such activities, for schools are not, after all, playgrounds. He played his words back and listened with dreamy satisfaction. What a happy discovery indeed! Harcourt shut off the machine and went back to bed filled with roseate dreams of all he would accomplish, beginning tomorrow. The finding of the disc recorder had absolutely cured his indigestion and had left him with a dizzy, happy feeling of remarkable exhilaration. He fell asleep at once and slept happily free of his previous apprehension about burglars. But not for long. In scarcely no time at all, he was awakened again. He heard a voice, and it sounded frighteningly nearby. Harcourt lay motionless under his sheet, and beads of perspiration popped into existence on his brow. He did not dare to stir. The voice he heard seemed to come from within this room. For all that, it had a peculiarly disembodied sound, as if it were actually rising far away and being projected into this room by an accomplished ventriloquist. He listened. Baxter! Baxter! So much was clear, perfectly clear, and in a woman's voice, too. The next sounds were utterly confusing. Gurgling, gasping sounds, strangled cries, and then, amazingly, a fragment of a song. Water, water everywhere, all I need to drink. 
What I want is clean, pure air, and not this murky drink. One live man on my dead breast, oh, ho, ho, and a bank account, too. As if this were not enough, the voice immediately thereafter became professional and smooth. The area of my present sojourn is remarkable for its moisture. London fogs have nothing on this muddy site. Small wonder the inhabitants wear fins. The temperature, however, seems never to vary. It is always pleasantly cool, since, of course, the water circulates. With a strangled cry, Harcourt sprang up and snapped on the bed lamp. Complete and utter silence fell on him like a sandbag. There was no one in the room. Harcourt knew intuitively there was no one in the house. He tried to take a hold of himself, though he was shaking badly. What I have done, he said in a firm, clear voice, is left that recorder going. Somehow I must have put back one of her records. So saying, he got up somewhat unsteadily and made his way to the overhead light switch, turned on the brighter lights, and went to examine the disc recorder. It was exactly as he had left it. The record in the machine was the one he himself had dictated, for it was only partially used. Harcourt did not know what to do next. Undeniably, the house was now as still as the night. He looked at his watch. Four o'clock in the morning. Already there was a faint glow in the east announcing the coming day. There was nothing for it but to make another tour of the house, just to make sure that no one was concealed in it. Armed this time with a stout poker, Harcourt examined the house from ceiling to cellar. Nothing had been disturbed, with a single exception. There was a kind of dampness leading from the French doors across the floor of his own room, the study which he used for both work and sleep, as if someone with wet feet had walked there. Yet there was no water, only an almost indefinable moisture, and a not unpleasant smell of damp places. There was only one conclusion left for Harcourt to assume, so he assumed it. Someone is playing a trick on me, he told himself. He went to bed once more, and this time slept without interruption until eight. However, by an hour past his breakfast, he began to think again uneasily of possible burglars, and weighing his own responsibilities in the matter, he walked into the village and found the sole minion of the law in Brancaster. To him he duly reported that there had been an attempt to break into the Nason house in the night. The constable listened gravely to all he had to say, but as he spoke, Harcourt realized that he could not say everything that had happened to him. Even to his own ears, what he was saying sounded like a nightmare or a fantasy of his own creation. He ended up by lamely saying he didn't know what his legal responsibilities were in case of burglary. Don't think you'd be responsible, said the constable laconically. Needn't to worry about that. As an afterthought, he added, Anything else happen, you let me know. Always anxious to serve. My duty, you know. Getting paid for it. Thus reassured, Harcourt returned to his temporary domicile and made preparations to dictate a disc or two. He was in the midst of his first disc when he caught sight of a large pig rooting around in his garden. With a cry of dismay, he left off dictating and ran outside, shouting angrily at the pig, which had evidently strayed from a neighboring farm. The pig regarded him with insolent boredom and waited until Harcourt had almost reached it before it turned and ran squealing for a cornfield which adjoined the property on the south. 
Harcourt followed and found the break in the pasture fence through which the animal had come, and by means of which it had returned to its fellows. Harcourt blocked it, somewhat indignant that the fences were not kept up. He returned to his dictation. The machine had kept on running in his absence, for he had forgotten to turn it off. No matter, Harcourt decided, and went on dictating. He was in fine fettle. Before he stopped, he had dictated on less than four discs, and he had begun to feel that he had his book well in hand. He struggled against his vanity and refrained from playing his discs back to himself. When he went to bed that night, he did so with some proper apprehension, lest he be awakened again. His sleep, however, was untroubled for several hours. It was well past midnight when a voice startled him from his sleep. This time, he recognized the voice without the least trouble. It was his own. It was coming from the disc recorder. Several recent studies have made, in effect, violent attacks on the theories of progressive education, some of them going so far as to disparage the late John Dewey as the author of all aspects of progressive education. This gross libel has gone unchallenged in many places, and the late great leader in the field of education has thus been unjustly blamed for the so-called improvements which have been forced upon educators by lesser minds unable to believe that the primary function of education is to educate, not to entertain. How good it sounded, thought Harcourt, listening in the darkness of his room. Despite his now subsiding alarm, he was very much pleased with the sound of his voice and the weight of his theories. His voice rolled on and on. Had it been any other voice but his own, it would have put him to sleep. Then suddenly it stopped. Harcourt recognized the break. The pig in the garden, he murmured. There should have been a long silence from the machine. There was not. Instead, there came once more a strange voice, a woman's voice saying, Please notify Carl Malam. Repeat, please notify Carl Malam. Harcourt had hardly time to feel the prickling in his scalp before his own voice rolled out of the darkness at him once more. As in the previous night, he leaped from bed and turned on the light. He bounded over to the disc recorder and turned it off. It was true, he had left a record on the machine. It was the fourth of his dictation. This one which he had heard was the first. So however incredible it might seem, someone had been in the room. Now he felt again along his bare feet a moisture as of the previous night. Whoever had come had walked through dewy grass. Whoever had entered the house, he discovered after another examination, must have had a key with which to lock the door behind him again, for once more nothing was disturbed in the tiniest degree. When Harcourt went back to bed, he did so regretfully, convinced that the nascent house was proving too much for him. His first impression of the house had, after all, been correct. It was not restful, anything but. Before he slipped under the covers this time, he made sure of the disc recorder and disconnected it. In an hour's time, he knew how vain this had been. Once again, that disembodied woman's voice came huskily out of the darkness. My opportunities for travel in this region are severely limited. As in the countries behind the Iron Curtain, there are such restrictions here as to amount to virtual imprisonment. If Mr. Malam were here, I am sure that he might effect my release. With a howl of anguish, Harcourt sprang from the bed for the second time. What devilish trickery made him its victim? Under the light he examined the disc recorder minutely. It offered him no clue. 
There was nothing about it to distinguish it from any other machine of its kind. Deliberately now, he connected the machine again, turned it on, and played back the first of the discs he had made the previous day. He listened with tense anxiety to his own words coming back to him. Yes, he had spoken them. Indeed, the record recreated the moments gone by. Now he had turned. Now he had caught sight of the pig. His voice duly stopped. He waited. Punctually came that other voice. Please notify Carl Malam. Repeat, please notify Carl Malam. And then, after a further pause, his own voice, post-pig. Under the light, one fact registered with crystal clarity. It had escaped him before. Carl Malam was the name of the phlegmatic constable to whom he had spoken in Brancaster only the past day. He did not go to bed again. As soon as the sun was up, he made his way to Brancaster and got Malam out of bed. Now what? asked Malam, not yet dressed. More burglars? I want you to come along with me, said Harcourt. Are you laying a charge? I'm obeying an order, but don't ask me who gave it. I don't know. You may. We'll see. The constable looked at him shrewdly, decided in his favor, and dressed to go along with Harcourt. At the house, Harcourt put his first disc on the recorder. Now listen, please. Malam did so without comment. He was manifestly not happy with Harcourt's academic and somewhat pompous dictation. He brightened visibly when, in the middle of the record, Harcourt's voice ceased to sound. At that point, I got up, leaving the machine running, and chased a pig out of the garden, said Harcourt. Now listen. Out came the adjuration to notify Carl Malam. The effect on the constable was extraordinary. He jumped to his feet and faced Harcourt. That's Mrs. Nason's voice. I'd know her voice anywhere. How did you manage that, Harcourt? She's in Bombay. Elisa Cobbett had a letter from her last week. Mr. Malam, no matter how ridiculous it may sound, I want to tell you every single thing that's happened to me in this house since I moved here. Thereupon, Harcourt narrated his experiences in the house with the same meticulous care with which he was writing his work on education. And Malam listened. Fortunately, the constable's imagination worked along somewhat different lines from Harcourt's. He lost no time. By nightfall, with the help of fellow villagers, he had grappled up from the lake bottom, where it had been buried in shallow water and weighted with rocks, the trunk containing the body of Bertha Nason. She had been strangled into unconsciousness and drowned. Baxter Nason, Certain that he had disposed of his troublesome wife beyond discovery, with the consummate egotism so much a part of many murderers, was taken with ease. Harcourt was so bewildered and upset by the whole affair that he abandoned his projected book. Fortunately, this was no loss to education. I'd like to do a shout out to all of you listening out there. Thank you so much for making this podcast possible. Thank you for joining me here on Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. 
please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. Thank you.